over the week I received an email from one of the class members, and I thought I'd share it with you. It's, it's some of her thoughts on the topic of suffering that we have covered uh, last class and, and the week before. I don't like to suffer. However, I believe there can be a positive side to suffering. You touched on this as you talked about crawling up in his lap. I believe that God uses suffering to correct sin, and we suffer as a result of his ultimate plan. But I also believe he uses suffering to refine us and grow us. This includes such situations as illness, death of loved ones, and other life situations which are beyond our control. We have found that God pours out his greatest blessings on us when we suffer. We learn of his amazing ability to use the most difficult times to work in the end for good. During difficult times, I have learned to turn things over to him and trust him. Of course, we all struggle with this, and at some times I am better at this than at other times. It seems he is always waiting for me to trust him with the results before the problems ever are resolved. And however things are resolved, he is always loving, and I can look back and see the blessings he has worked in our lives. If we never had to cling to him during difficult times, we would never experience his amazing power and comfort, nor would we really learn how we can trust him. All right. We finished, we almost finished Pergamum last week. We, we got to the very last verse, the he who overcomes first. So we're going to finish that up today and do Thyatira. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Everybody knows, pretty much everybody, knows the story of the manna. You know, how the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, had nothing to eat, no water, no food, and God miraculously provided water, and he rained manna down on them every morning and every evening. What we don't know is what is Christ referring to as the hidden manna. What hidden manna? Did somebody save some? You know, and he's going to give it to us later. What does he mean by hidden manna? Well, actually, Jesus gave us the explanation of that. Look at John six twenty-seven through 35. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is the hidden manna. 
He's saying he will give him who overcomes the bread of life. Himself. The next thing he's going to give him is a white stone. And I have to tell you, this word stone that's used here is unique. This is the only place in the entire New Testament this particular Greek word is used for stone. Now, it makes me crazy when translators don't like translate it so you can tell that it's a different word. I did not realize until after I had printed everything, done my whole lesson, and I was just reading another translation just casually, and I realized that this is a different word and it makes a big difference. The word used here is the word for pebble that has been made smooth by much handling. All the other words for stone are words for like millstone, big stones you throw at people when you want to stone them. It's a a different word entirely. And I wanted to show you all, if you're looking to expand your um, study library, this is a great resource. It's the Unvarnished New Testament by Andy Goss. And it is a translation that retains the flavor and style of the author, each human author of the Bible. So, for example, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can tell which ones were educated and which ones weren't. You can tell the difference in their style of writing. He left all the grammatical errors in there. Okay, It's not sanitized. It's accurate. It is an accurate translation, but it has not been you know, homogenized. Andy Goss, G-A-U-S. It's available at like Barnes and Nobles, and it's it's a widely available translation. I use it a lot, especially in the letters of Paul. Paul's sentences can get so long you just can't understand what he's saying, and and uh, Andy really does a great job of of translating his his sentences, but. Um, Here's what it says, his translation of this verse. Everyone with ears, hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. To the victor I will give manna never seen before, and I will put in his hand a white pebble, and written on the pebble will be a new name which no one knows but the person receiving it. Because I read, I was reading Andy Goss's translation last night, I realized that the word for stone was really pebble. And then I went and looked it up and found out, sure enough, that's the only place in the New Testament it's used. The pebble, in fact, if you look at the definition in Strong's, that this word for pebble is specifically associated with an implication of use as a counter or ballot, a verdict, or a ticket of admission, a vote, a stone, a voice. In olden times, when you were in court and you were tried... If you were acquitted, the judge would hand you a white pebble. If you were convicted, he would hand you a black pebble. That's how you knew whether you were guilty or innocent at the end of the trial. And so most translators do, or most interpreters, do tell you that that's what the meaning of this stone is. is It means you are going to be acquitted. You're going to be handed the white pebble. But that, although I totally agree with that interpretation... It's incomplete, in my opinion, because it doesn't tell you the significance of the new name that gets written on that stone. And I want to tell you some of that. I think we have to go back 
physically to the city of Pergamum to understand the significance of the name. One of the temples in Pergamum was the Asclepion. It, it was a healing temple dedicated to the god Asclepius, the god of medicine. Snakes were sacred to Asclepius. And his symbol was a rod that had one snake wrapped around it. And I put in your handout, your scripture references, I showed you the symbol of Asclepius. That symbol is the current symbol of the World Health Organization. It is the symbol recognized internationally for medicine outside of the U.S. By comparison, I showed you the symbol of Caduceus, which is next to it which is widely recognized in the U.S. as the symbol of medicine. It's a rod with two serpents wound around it. That happens to be a mistake. Whoever um, adopted that symbol for the U.S. Army Corps, Medical Corps, back in 1902, did not do their research. They got the wrong god, and they actually adopted the symbol of Hermes, who is the patron saint of thieves and merchants. (laughs) 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 There were many healing temples in Greece, but the one at Pergamum was especially famous. One of the most famous physicians of all time, you you may recognize him from your studies even, was Galen. And he studied at the Asclepion in Pergamum before he went on to become the physician to the emperors. The Asclepion was a very elaborate place, and the ruins still exist. Um, it was a whole lot like a luxury health spa today, with a few creepy exceptions. There were snakes everywhere. Pilgrims who enter the Asclepion would first get interviewed by the priests, and they would screen you, the priests of Asclepion. And if you were pregnant, you were not allowed to enter the treatment facility. If you had a terminal disease, obviously a terminal disease, you were not allowed to enter the treatment facility. If you were admitted, you know, you theoretically had a hope of being cured, and you would go into this big open area called a stoa. The, the Greeks were big on stoas. And from that area, you would begin to descend a staircase down, down, down. And it would take you into a tunnel, a long, dark tunnel and everywhere is the sound of water you can hear water running down the sides of this tunnel and you go through this long dark tunnel and eventually you come out into a big round room which is where the treatment facilities were if you've ever seen um, modern round hospitals with the nurses station in the middle and the rooms around the outside this is what similar to what you would come out into at this Asclepion it was two-story treatment facility And um, what would happen is you were given drugs and then taken to a room to sleep overnight. And what you were supposed to do is have a dream visit by the god Asclepian, and he he was going to, you know, reveal to you how you're going to get healed, okay? And in the meantime, you'd have to drug me because while you're laying there um, sleeping, there's like brown and yellow snakes, running around on the floor. Now, they're non-poisonous, and they were specific. They were Asclepian snakes. They were a specific kind. There is no way. You, you couldn't drag me down in that place. But, but this, they considered this, you know, the actual spirit of that God, and it was holy to them. So anyway, the patient would wake up in the morning, and he'd meet with the priest again, and he would tell whatever it was he dreamed about, and the priest would divine 
whatever the treatment plan was. Well, surprisingly enough, what they would generally prescribe was diet, exercise, and rest. <laughs> and that's where the health spa part comes in, because at, you would then go into this treatment. You could nap. You could go to the library. You could sit in the theater. You could exercise in the gymnasium. You could take mud baths. You could soak in the hot water. You could get music therapy. As this is, temple of Asclepion at Pergamum is known in the music history um, be, because it was one of the places they began to use music, meditation, fasting, and hypnosis in their treatment. They were very modern in their treatment. We have, really haven't come very far in terms of health spa type of, of, of healing. Well, anyway, all of this part is documented. You know, you see it in articles. Everybody knows about this. But the part that particularly gives meaning to the name on the white stone, I have never seen in any article anywhere. And I am indebted to the focus on the family series titled That the World May Know. It's a series of DVDs that we had watched in this class um, before we started doing Daniel. And there, one of the DVDs in the series is titled Where Satan Lives. And it takes you on a tour of the ruins at Pergamum including the Asclepion. And at the end of the tour, Ray Vanderlyn and Mark DeHaan show you something that they think is significant, and I agree with them. As you exit, as a pilgrim, as you exit the, temp- as you exit the Asclepion, you go into an, up some stairs into another temple. On one side of that temple is a statue of Asclepius, and he's holding his rod with his serpent around him. And then... Um, Uh, In the middle of the temple is this big box with snakes in it. And you go out of that temple, and as you exit the temple, you go down a path. And beside the path are rows of white stones. They look like tombstones, actually. They're not pebbles. These are big white stones. And you would scribe your name on the stone along with your thanks to the god Asclepian for healing you. To him I give a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. See, anyone living in Pergamum at that time would know that once you were healed, you wrote your name on a white stone. And here, Christ promises to write your name on a white stone, signifying your complete healing. It's an amazing parallel, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Thyatira. We're in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your works and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your works of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, 
who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira was a little town that lay on the road between Pergamum and Sardis. It was well known for its industry and its trade guilds. They had skilled workers in virtually everything you could think of, leather, metal, all the fiber arts, you know, spinning, weaving, dyeing. They, they were in the slave trade. It was a city full of businessmen. That's what it did. Lydia, if you remember from your New Testament, there was a woman named Lydia who was a dealer in purple dye, purple cloth who was converted by Paul. She was from Thyatira. Okay, she was a businesswoman from Thyatira. It's really strange that Christ would pick this little bitty blue-collar town, and he wrote the longest letter of the seven letters to this little town. It's kind of like you write a short letter to Houston, you write a short letter to New Orleans, and you write the really big letter to Beaumont. Okay, that's what this is like. So... It kind of lends credence to the fact that, because there were much bigger churches in this area, lends credence to the fact that these churches were selected because of their characteristics, okay? Because, Because this message needed to be heard by all of us, churches throughout the ages. Christ referred to himself in this letter, let's look into his description of himself, as the Son of God, his most authoritative title. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And his feet like burnished bronze. The attribute of fire is particularly telling because it is associated throughout scripture with judgment. It is associated with consuming a man's works and burning away the chaff to reveal what's true and holy. Look at Luke 3.15. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ... John answered them and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you in water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Luke 12:49 Jesus himself said, "I have come to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it was already kindled." And finally, 1 Corinthians 3:11 For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That saying that 
even though we are saved, we are fundamentally saved, we will have eternal life, it matters what we do with our salvation. It matters. Our works matter. We have a foundation. Jesus has provided us an unshakable foundation. We are saved. But it matters what we build on that foundation. And we can build gold or we can build straw. Okay? It's up to each of us. And what this verse is saying is you'll be saved, but there is coming a time when whatever you've built on that foundation will be burned up. And if it's gold, it's going to remain. It is nothing but becomes purer and purer. Okay? The, the metals. But if it's straw, it'll be completely burned away. You'll go to heaven, but, but you won't receive a, a, a reward. Okay? There's more to heaven than just getting there. Okay? So, pardon? Jewels in our crown. Jewels in our crown. There you go. But Christ's eyes are as a flame of fire. Okay? So he is seeing their works for what they are. The description of his feet as being like burnished bronze has been really hard for scholars to interpret because that, the word that is used for burnished bronze is a compound word. It's really made up of two Greek words. And nobody's for sure what that really means. One of the words appears to be for a metal alloy of some sort. Okay, It could be silver and gold. could be copper. could be brass. I mean, you know, it's just some kind of metal. And the other word actually means, other part of the compound word actually means frankincense, which is, and especially the whiteness of frankincense. That's why it's translated as feet of, of bronze that is white hot, okay, or feet of brass that are white hot. It, your, different translations will have different, different um, specific words that they use to translate that. I also think that the reference to frankincense adds a sense of holiness or royalty. I didn't see this in any of the reference materials, but I think it's significant that Christ's feet are in view. I think it's significant that it's his feet, not his hands. Okay? And the reason I think that is because there is a quote, a scripture out of Psalm 110, verse 1 and 2, that is quoted five times in the New Testament. I haven't counted it up, but that may be the most quoted scripture in the New Testament. The only other one I can think that would come close is the one about Jesus being a stumbling stone, a cornerstone. Um, but this has got to be a very important scripture if it's quoted five times in the New Testament. Here's what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. I think Christ's feet are glowing white hot because the time has come for him to place his enemies under his feet. I think that's what Revelation is about. So, combine the eyes of fire, the burning feet... And you have the very picture of impending, immediate judgment, right? The key to the letter is in the trade guilds of Thyatira. They were like a microcosm, a parable of the most insidious threat to this church. And that is the temptation to compromise. The temptation to compromise with the enemies. 
of Christ. Each of the trade guilds worked back then just pretty much like they do today. You know, you get together, you have meetings, you talk about standard practices, you network. You know, it's exactly what we do today in, quote, professional associations or trade guilds even. And the difference was, or maybe it's not a difference, but back then, as each of the trade guilds had a patron deity. And as part of the meeting, they would sacrifice food and to this idol and eat it. If you lived in Thyatira, you were pretty much, by definition, a businessman or his family, his or her family. These Christians had to belong to these professional associations to function in this city. So they're faced every day or whenever they're meeting during these meetings with how do we deal with these idle rituals, you know, and each of them probably made an individual decision about how they how they dealt with that. As you would expect, this little church being under pressure has compromised. Undoubtedly, some of the Christians participate in those idle idle rituals. Undoubtedly, some some of them don't. Some of them take, quote, the high road. Because of their very nature as people, these are worker bees, right? And so it's not surprising that they are commended more than once for their works. They are a church that's going to understand you need to do works. Okay, that's how, that's how they express love. That's, how they, that's, that's who they are. They would understand. There's a famous passage in James that talks about if you really have faith, and it's a real and living faith. It will naturally result in works of God. Look at James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not just by faith alone. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. What's that, what that's saying, it's like a lot of circular language in there, but what that's saying is that Abraham did not know Christ. But his work, his action, his willingness to put his only son on the altar to God demonstrated the root of faith that lived in him and that it was real living faith. That's what James is saying. That you can look at a person's actions and tell what is on the inside in their faith. Okay? You can tell whether it's faith in Satan or faith in God. No, he didn't know Christ. He did know God. And, that, and, 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 and that's what Christ had always said. If you know God, you know me. So what, does, what do they mean by works? Okay, was he referring to their hard work at trade? No. He means the work of God. And we, in modern days, tend to water down the work of God. We tend to think of it as volunteer work, you know, helping the poor, giving money to charity. We are called to much more than that. Look at Matthew 11:2. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word. This is John the Baptist they're talking about. He sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered them and said, 
Go and report what you hear and what you see. Tell John the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And look at John 14:12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's a huge promise. Do we walk in that? Rarely. Okay. Do we get so blinded by living in our physical world that we do not operate in the spiritual world? Okay. I have to tell you, I have never healed a blind man. I have never raised anybody from the dead, but I know people who have. I do not worship an impotent God. I worship the God of the universe. My God can do anything. But my God is patient. There's so much more for us that we don't even touch on. Absolutely. We don't even go there. Absolutely. Now, it is not my place to manufacture these works. If you read those scriptures that we just read carefully, you'll see that it's our place to believe. It's our place to believe God can do these works. It's our place to stand where he puts us. And watch him do the works. I had a friend once who told me a dream that she had. She was in a terrible place in her life. And she could not understand what God was doing with her. Her life was closing in on her. And she felt like God was not letting her step out. He kept making her stay where she was. And in her dream, God, it was like a camera shot, she said. It was tight in on her. And she was standing with her arms like this. And slowly the shot pulled back. And as she stood, as it pulled back, she saw more and more people next to her, all with their hands like this. And as they pulled back even further, it was a human Statue of Liberty stacked one on each other. And if any one person had moved out of their place, everybody would have fallen. There is a scripture in the Old Testament that says God is looking for someone to stand in the gap. Okay? That's what we are called to do. And it doesn't matter how mundane you think your life is and how unimportant you think it is, whatever it is that God has given you to do. What is most important is not what you can see, but how obedient you can be in where he's placed you. Look at John 6:28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Look at Ephesians 2.9. This one's great. 2.10 actually. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created for good works. But look at the works we were created for. We were created for the works God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Isn't that beautiful? Talk about the burden being light. The works have already been done. All we have to do is walk in them. The little church at Thyatira knew these truths. We know they did because they had a very real live faith that you could see in the outworking of their actions. And Christ commended them for their faith, for their unconditional love, their patient endurance, and their works. Works that were continuing to grow and bear fruit. But this church was in a terrible position. They were faced with the idol worship in the workplace. They had idol worshipers attending their church. Most likely, these were their co-workers, their professional associates, even their bosses. You can see how difficult it would have been for them to know where to draw the line. Where do, you draw the, where do we draw the line now? We struggle with this, don't we, today? As a result, they had tolerated a false teacher, this woman that Christ referred to as Jezebel. Around 920 B.C., the king of Israel, whose name was Ahab, married a really wicked woman named Jezebel. This woman considered herself the prophetess of Baal and some other pagan gods. And she actually supported whole communities of prophets, pagan prophets, like 400, you know, I mean, eight, at, quote, eight at her table. They were supported by her. She led them. She sought out the prophets of God and murdered them. She had them. It was so bad that Elijah figured he was the last guy on earth, you know, who worshipped God. It was, it was just horrible what happened. And there's some terrific stories about some of the miracles that God did. Well, this woman not only murdered God's prophets, she misled the Israelites, obviously, into idolatry. And she finally, there was a prophecy that she would be killed and the dogs would lick her blood. And sure enough, ultimately, she was literally pitched out of a second story window of her castle by her own men. Dashed on the rocks. And by the time they got down to pick up her body, there was nothing left but her skull, her hands, and her feet. Because the dogs had eaten her in fulfillment of that prophecy. Now, for 3,000 years, this woman's evil has been legendary. For 3,000 years, very few parents have named their daughter Jezebel. (laughs) And that's how many people know somebody named Jezebel? You know? Mary, yes. Jezebel, no. Okay. So, so you can see that it is unlikely that this woman in this church was literally named Jezebel. That's Christ's name for her. He sees her spiritually. And it's possible she was named Jezebel. But it's much more likely that this was his name for her, her spirit, for what she represented. Revelation 2.20 I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness or suffering, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. You know, on some of the handouts, on the handouts, you will see from time to time in the scriptures words that are in italics, and they seem to be in italics for no rhyme or reason. If you have a Bible that that does that, and capitalizes things or puts things in italics or does anything, you know, strange, go and look at the at the notes at the beginning of the Bible or at the end because there's always a meaning. This is part of my study software. It italicizes any word that has been inserted for the purpose of understanding but is not in the original language. Okay? So that's very helpful to me to know when to look further because it means somebody thought this was confusing enough to add some words to the scripture. Jezebel considers herself a religious leader and calls herself a prophet. She is repeating the sin of Balaam but more so. Remember we talked about Balaam last week. Balaam suggested to the king Balak how to seduce Israel. And it worked, right? Jezebel, this Jezebel, she's not suggesting it. She's leading the charge. Okay, she's showing them how to do this. She is teaching to them that Christians don't have to worry about what they do because they're saved, no matter what. God hates immorality, especially sexual immorality. He hates idol worship, and that doesn't mean it has to be a statue. Okay. It's whatever we set up in his place, in our hearts, and in our lives. It is the worst insult we can give to him to despise his gift of life to us. And to walk up, walk away, to turn our backs. Hebrews 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who breaks the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And who said, The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This woman knew she was perverting the people of God. She was doing it willfully. She had a chance to repent and she turned her back on it. And Christ uses language in this Greek, in the Greek here, that is present tense. It says, it's like, I am doing this punishment to this woman. The phrase, if you look back at the italics I was referring to, the phrase that I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Of sickness does not appear in the Greek. I think it's, it's implied by the context. It actually says, I'm going to throw her on a bed. Okay. Um, but almost everybody interprets that as, as a bed of sickness of some sort. But, I, you know, to me, it doesn't matter what happens to Jezebel. I know she's doomed. 
Okay? What matters is what happens to the church, to the Christians, to the, to the believers that are misled. Christ says they will experience great tribulation unless they repent of her works. There's the whole thing on works again. The letter of Thyatira should just like ping works into your head. It's about your actions. Galatians 5:17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, Carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, (coughs) peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our hearts and our faith are revealed by the fruit, the works in our lives. And so it's no surprise that those who follow Jezebel are going to experience great tribulation. Revelation 22, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, it doesn't say so here, but I think the children that are referred to here are not physical children. I think they're her spiritual children. I, I, God is all about the spirit, and, the, and he's talking about the people who are following Jezebel, her children in the spirit, just like we're children of God. To me, that's the only, you know, that's the only interpretation that makes sense. With the next sentence that says he's going to repay us according to our deeds. Verse 23 that talks about, um, I will strike her children dead. It's very emphatic. It's rarely interpreted literally. And I think this is a mistake. The NIV says, I'll strike her children dead. The NASB translation says, I will kill her children with pestilence. The actual Greek actually says, I will kill her children with death. I think it should be translated literally. I think Christ is saying, they will not have eternal life. They will experience the second death, that being cast in the lake of fire. I think the translations that we see water that down. And you don't see how emphatic Jesus is about the fact that reward is life. The punishment or the lack of reward is death. It's interesting also that the phrase hearts and minds is not, in, in the Greek, is not hearts and minds. It's kidneys. It's kidneys and hearts. And that's actually an idiom that was used in Hebrew and in Greek. You find it throughout the Old and the New Testament. It probably is translated properly, you know, hearts and minds. Okay. It means searches you internally. But this is one of the things that I find fruitful to meditate on. You know, it's the kind of thing to take and turn over in your mind. What does it mean? When God says he searches the kidneys and the hearts. The kidneys in a body process waste. Out of the heart comes the fruit of the spirit. 
You know, it's just interesting to think about and reflect on what that means. That Jesus, when Jesus, when the Lord searches our hearts, Jeremiah 17:9, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. These, this searching, you know, and giving according to your deeds, it all is bound up in judgment, okay? A decision making of some sort. Consequences, okay, of your actions. If I were a follower of Jezebel, I'd be trembling in my shoes at this point. But, as Christians, we know we are clothed with, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have nothing to fear from Christ searching our kidneys and our hearts he can look at the waste in my life and in fact the sooner we let the fire of the spirit burn away the dross the better as far as we're concerned because then we can be assured that we are building a reward on the foundation of Jesus Christ God is loving toward us and if we humble ourselves to him we can trust him to search us with a hand of love. Psalm 139, the whole thing, we're not going to read the whole thing, is a beautiful testimony of someone who had been searched by God. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. What a difference repentance makes, huh? We submit ourselves freely to the fire of the Spirit. We don't have to wait for a judgment. We have Jesus now. We have the Spirit now. We can lay our works, our very being, before him and ask him to burn up the chaff. And he will do it. He is faithful. Revelation 2.24 But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, and who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. The deep things of Satan refers to that teaching of Jezebel, that Christians are saved by grace, and therefore, in order to be mature Christians, You need to really experience the deep things of Satan. And and that's how she tempted them into sexual immorality, eating of idol, sacrificed food, of doing all manner of sin. Because she said, it'll make you wiser. It'll make you mature. This is how you get to be mature. First off, the theology is faulty, right? Romans 6, verse 1. This is Paul. Paul, This drove Paul crazy. Because this was like Jezebel. This was not limited to this woman, Jezebel. This, This theory was out there from the beginning of grace. This theory was out there among the new churches. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. 
how shall we who died to sin still live in it? If you read Romans, you can, you'll get a whole earful about um, grace and what it really means and not to pervert it. But the real problem with Jezebel and why Christ came down on her so hard was this tempting of the Christian by saying it's going to make you closer to God. A better warrior. If you know what Satan's up to, you'll be a better warrior. It is the same argument Satan used on Eve. Look at Genesis 3, verse 2. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It will make you better. You'll, you'll be closer to him. You'll understand him. Or you can have a better conversation with God if you do this. He's just, he's just waiting for you to grow up. Okay, you're old enough now. You can handle this. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. No wonder Christ was so harsh on the Christians who were following this teaching. They were repeating the original sin. It does not matter if the action is good if God told you not to do it. But to the others, the ones who were resisting her teaching and clinging to, her, to their faith in Christ and to his call in holiness and purity, to these Christ had words of hope. I place no other burden on you. Hold fast to what you have until I come. The burden he's talking about is just the burden of existing in this environment, of staying pure and staying holy, overcoming whatever it is that Satan throws at them. A whole lot of the, the early Christians were Jewish in, in their original faith. And they understood the Mosaic law and following rules and the dietary and the schedule and all the, the circumcision, the Sabbath, all that stuff. But once Christ came and fulfilled the law, there was a lot of confusion in the early church as to what did that mean then for the Jews? You know, were they not supposed to follow any of the law anymore? Were they supposed to do that, you know, continue to be circumcised and continue to observe the Sabbath? And, you know, was being Christian, did that just add stuff on there? And in answer to that, the apostles called like a summit meeting in Jerusalem. And all the leaders of the early church came and they discussed this. And Peter and Paul both got up and spoke to the assembly about the fact that, that God had come to the Gentiles and they didn't think that the Gentiles should have to be circumcised and you know, live according to the Jewish law. And so what they ended up deciding was the following. They sent a letter to all the churches and presumably to Thyatira in Acts 15:27. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And notice what they said. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. 
Okay. Now the the two middle parts about the dietary, you know, we don't it's we don't really run into that nowadays, right? So it's not a big temptation. But the ones that we do run into nowadays are sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols in, in terms of anything of value okay, in our life, sacrifice to idols. Jezebel's teaching had led these Christians away from two of those four basic instructions. And Christ is just reaffirming, you know, you don't have to do anything beyond what you already know you have to do. Okay, I'm not putting more of a burden on you. And then finally is the promise to Thyatira, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the only letter that adds a condition to he who overcomes. Did you catch that? It says, to he who overcomes and does my will to the end. What does that mean? To do his will. How do you know God's will? I believe that that knowing God's will is as natural to a Christian as learning to know your own mother's voice as a baby. It doesn't take long for you to know the voice of your mother from every other woman in the room, every other woman in the world, because you depend on her for food. You depend on her for comfort. You depend on her for protection. And you watch her all the time. You know where she is at every moment. And if your walk with God is like that, you will naturally know his will. Jesus said he knew the will of the Father because he watched what he was doing. He watched what the Father was doing and he did that. Just like a child imitating their mother. Here's what Paul had to say about it. Colossians 1.9 we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You have to make an effort to mature as a Christian. It just doesn't happen. You have to make an effort to study, to pray, to worship, to keep your eyes on God and to keep yourself in his presence. The great promise is not you go do your thing and I'll come running after you, although he does do that. The great promise is draw near to God and he will draw near to you. For the people that do mature okay, and know the will of the Father, there is no other way to do it other than maturing. Christ promises a special reward this is in addition to their basic salvation, a special reward, and that is they will reign with him over 
the nations on earth in his earthly kingdom. When he comes here to reign for a thousand years, we will, earn, we will reign with him on earth. We saw in Daniel lots of prophecies of that, remember? There's one in 727, Daniel 727. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey him. So Christ reiterates this promise to the Christians at the church of Thyatira. And he also quotes from a messianic scripture in the Old Testament. Look what it says. Psalm 2, 7. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is a... Old Testament prophecy that specifically talks about the Messiah as being the Son of God. It also talks about his inheritance as being the nations of the earth. Christ quotes this prophecy to the Christians at Thyatira saying, I'm going to share my inheritance with you. You're going to reign with me. And lastly, he says he's going to give us the morning star. There's only one other place in scripture that refers to us being given the morning star. And that's in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They're talking about the transfiguration. Okay. When they go up on the mountain and Jesus is glorified by God. For when he re- And they were there to watch it. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. I think it's interesting that the only other promise of us receiving that morning star is right in the middle of of an exhortation urging us to pay attention to prophecy. It says we're waiting for a, a day to dawn which presumably is a day and that begins our happily ever after with Christ, right? And the morning star rises in our hearts. We know for sure from the end of Revelation, the definition and identification of the morning star. Look at Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So here in the letter to Thyatira, Jesus has promised to give us everything he has. He has promised, he already gave his life for us. 
He just promised to share his inheritance with us. And lastly, he's telling them he will actually give himself to them. That sounds remarkably like a wedding vow. And we're going to find out at the end of Revelation that that's exactly what it is. And we'll stop there. We finished Thyatira. We'll move on to Sardis next week.